Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with innovators, challenging the status quo to create a better world. You're listening to Season 1, our series on space as a service. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. That's at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram. Today, we're going to be talking to James Goldsmith, who's the leasing and marketing director for AXA IM, who's developing 22 Bishop's Gate, going to be the second tallest building in London. Second tallest building in London next to the Shard, I understand. Is that right? We always try and avoid the statistics, but yeah, that basically is the second tallest building in London, Caleb. But so what I understand also, though, is that it's it might be the second tallest, but it's actually the highest um, place in London that you can have an office. Is that right? It is the highest offices in London. And actually, when we talk about it, I mean, everyone always wants to talk about the what, Caleb. So the building is uh, it's going to be in terms of occupiable space, the best part of one and a half million square foot. It is. By height, 278 meters, it's 62 stories. These are the stats that people always love to hear. But, you know, for us, that's a kind of game of, it's almost like real estate top trumps. And I think, you know, our thinking has moved on. That's what it is. You know, for us, it's much more about the why, you know, why, why developing this. And we had to hit the button on this. Um, you know, we, we, we would put the site together. We had all the funding. We had the scheme. We had started doing all these substructure works. But we had to make a big decision just after the Brexit vote. And that wasn't a result we necessarily expected. But for all sorts of reasons, which you know, I won't necessarily go into right now. I mean, we can come on to it a little bit later. Mm. You know, but for us, it was always about the why you know, and what people wanted to get out of offices. And you know, when, when you look around and look at how um, occupiers are behaving and people are behaving, you know, old school behaviors such as like self-interest, um, competition and hierarchy, they are, as I said, you know, old school. And much more it's about like shared purpose, collaboration and adaptability. And they were the themes and why we wanted to create the space and what it represents. And I've, I've used this like so many times, but um, at about the time we were pressing the button, Tim Leckie, uh, I don't know if you know Tim, Tim is a real estate analyst at J.P. Morgan Casanova. He's great if you can get onto his bulletins. It's not always that easy. But he did a really interesting piece um, all about the, uh, the flexible office sector. He was writing up, you know, one of the particular REITs in that sector. I think it's about workspace, as I recall. And he used this really nice um, uh, like metaphor um, about Coase's theory. Ronald Coase was an economist in the last century. And he had this theory about how businesses grew and they got bigger and bigger. And the reason they did that was because it created efficiencies. They could capture um, IP. And so things like research, um, sales, legal teams all became, you know, the same company. And the sort of environments that people worked in became very inclusive and the buildings were almost like silos. And yet you look at what was happening to business and actually businesses were becoming much more, you know, mobile. It was a smaller, more agile businesses that were actually getting to market quicker, mm -hmm. working in open networks. And that, you know, we thought was a really nice metaphor for what we had. So it's bringing businesses together working in an open network and the real difference is is that you know business is going forward if they're going to succeed they have to innovate if they are going to innovate they have to collaborate and to collaborate you need to be in a community and community is about people and that's the byword for them which love that i love that and how do, but how does that how does that manifest into the actual space itself what in terms of the design of the space well, I, actually, I, I recall, and actually, um, you and I caught up for breakfast last week, and you were talking about this. And um, I think, I think the way you put it, and I thought it was a good question. I was just reflecting on it. Is you know, um, was it you said something about how do we think talent expectations have changed corporate real estate? And I think there is quite a big shift going on. You know, when we look 
back, you know, traditionally the way you created value out of real estate was to lease as much space on as long a lease as possible at the highest rent, created a lease, and then you just spent 20 years just trying to take the income. As a landlord, that's... As, that, as, a, as a landlord, and there's yeah. a good word, yeah. every Dickensian term, landlord, tenant, and everything that conjures, conjures up, we prefer sort of owner and occupiers and the, okay. the, the, these so as an words. owner then? As, as, as an owner. But in terms of creating value, um, it's all about creating space that will appeal to as wide a diversity of occupiers as possible and is adaptable over time. And if you've got a product in a building, do that, then that will create value. And, and the way we measure value, again, it's, it's less about, you know, you know, the rents we achieve and the length of the leases, but it's, it's, it's more about the success of the occupiers. And if you've got a building which has, you know, a reputation for breeding successful occupiers, then that's a building that's always going to be a demand and always going to have value. But we need to be realistic. Look, at the end of the day, we're, we're developers and therefore what we can do, but we can create a wrapper. And if we can create a wrapper, an environment which is attractive to people, then if occupiers can attract good people, then that is a great foundation to building successful businesses. It's interesting. I was going to, I was going to challenge you on that when you first started, because um, it sounded like you were saying it's not all about the money. Um, but I'm paraphrasing here, but, but it is about, uh, it is about the money, we're, we're, but we're you're investment not, managers yeah. and you know, this, is, this isn't a social experiment, but it, it's how to create the value. There are very conventional ways of, of creating the money or actually, do we just need to turn it around and say, if we get the product right, if we get the environment right and we encourage the right behaviors and the, and the right businesses in there, then the money will, will, will flow from it. And we just need to be confident of that metric, which is turning things around a little bit. Fair enough, and, and that, that's that's why I I stopped the challenge because you you handled it. That's <laughs> fine. You came out nicely with that, and I, I you know when you first started this, you started talking about the why, yeah. it, which reminds me of of Simon Sinek uh, or Sinek. Um, uh, people pronounce it different ways, I guess, depending on what country you're from. Um, I'm sure Simon pronounces it the right way, though. <laughs> but, I hope so. But in, it was in, parents anyway. <laughs> in in Simon's um, talk about um, how great leaders inspire. Action in, in his representation of the Golden Circle, he references, he references Apple and, and how Apple leads with the why and everything they do. Did AXA draw its inspiration okay. um, from how Apple um, creates I think customers? certainly we saw a shift going on and just looking at how, you know, what occupiers wanted, build, wanted out of buildings. The consistent theme was it was always about people. And uh, it was before my time on a project, but, um, you know, some colleagues of mine, um, this been a, you know, Harry, who's my development uh, director, Stuart Lipton, our development partner, and Karen Cook, our architect, who went over to Australia and saw what was having over there. And it's interesting how so many kind of like best examples of uh, workplace practice are going on over there. And the sort of environments they were creating were, you know, very human. And um, there was this lovely test, which uh, Harry reminded me of, is that, you know, what, one of the tests of the success of the building is how often people brought in their friends and family to the building. So I don't know if that's quite answering the, the question, but it was, you know, it, it's certainly about creating the right environment. It's not just the wrapper. It's not just the real estate. It's how you create, um, you know, the, the right managed environment. And, you know, for us, when we look at the value of the building, you know, it is more and more about that management, uh, that management skill set. It's less about the wrapper. So it's interesting how, you know, when we've, uh, recruited for 22 and putting that management team in, you know, we've got five or six core people. None of them actually come from a traditional real estate background. They That's interesting. Di different skill sets. 
And they're the, the skill sets that, you know, create the, the environment and the stickiness in, in the building. And when you talk about stickiness, and you also mentioned people there mm-hmm. as well, um, space as a service, this is what we're talking about in season, in season one. Of course. So space as a service, you've pinpointed as being very important and a crucial aspect of, of the building. Um, when you quoted your stats earlier, it's a million square feet. Is that right? We're, uh, we're about 1.35 million square foot of usable space. Okay, so 1.35 million yep. square feet. How much of that space have you dedicated or allocated for space as a service? Uh, in, in the core design of the building, uh, probably just a little over 100,000 square foot is what we call community spaces or amenity spaces. That's all the way through from the, uh, from, from the bike park in the active commuting space through to the food area, food market. Um, our innovation space, you know, the physical well-being, mental well-being, and the club at the top of the building. And that comes to about 100,000 square foot. And that, I guess, I guess what you're going to ask me is, well, how do we get to that number? That's partly actually driven by the design of the building. We, you know, we had spaces where we had um, some, some pockets of space which would naturally lend themselves to offices. Um, but, you know, by, but by also by you know, happy coincidence, you know, when you look at the population of our building of 12,000 people, you know, what is the size of a gym that that might command? What is the size of a food market might that one need? That actually married very well with those areas of space. But on top of that, we also layer our flexible space. Um, and, you know, flexible leasing was always going to be a core part of the offer. And, Why? Uh, uh, because that is what occupiers are, are demanding. You know, right now, it, it, you know, as an occupier, you, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to you know, be clear about what your business looks like in three years, let alone 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. And you're asking people on leases to make commitments for 10, 15, 20 years, traditionally. Um, and actually, they have, they have generally been um, you know, willing to do that, more willing than I think we would have anticipated at the outset. But because of the scale of the building, it does mean that we can provide occupiers with optionality uh, because of the scale of the building, you know, they've always got scope to grow. There will always be space there, you know, because of the diversity of occupiers in the building. If they want to move space on, then there's generally always going to be an audience there that wants to take it. But everything we were hearing from occupiers we spoke to was that they were saying, well, we would like perhaps about 20 percent of our um, of our you know, occupied space to be on flex terms. It'll cost more, but it just gives them those lungs to kind of expand and contract. So if you look at 20% of our building and took that forward, that could be about 250,000 square foot of flexible space. So does, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So are you saying that if an occupier comes in and, and takes a floor, let's say they, let's say they take 40,000 square feet, mm-hmm. is, is 20% of, of that 40,000 square foot, they want to be flexible? Or are they saying they want to have access to have flex space outside of their footprint. Um, so, so, so what was that? Twenty percent, say eight thousand square foot. So, if you're occupying forty as core, the metric we were picking up from occupiers was we'd want access to another eight to ten thousand square foot of flex on space on top then, of their footprint. On top of that, now okay. they might take that immediately. It might be something where they say, "Well, in future, we might need that." So, you know, as, as I said, it's very difficult to look forwards. But what, what's important is we provide them that environment for them to be able to, to do that. Now, we, we could just lease space and do that through optionality, but actually, if they want it on sort of three to five year terms are we, and they want it to be in some way serviced, are we the best people to do that? Or should we partner with someone who is able to provide that themselves? Okay, so, so let me just back up then. 
they have 40,000 square foot, they want access to 8,000. They're not getting access to 8,000 for a, a 10 years in three years. They're having access to the 8,000 square foot as and when they need it mm-hmm. um, on shorter terms. Um, and, and now you're saying that's through a third party. Yes. What, what, what is your thinking there? Why go the third party route and why not manage that yourself? Well, the partner that we've gone with for the, for the initial flexible environment is, uh, is Convene. Uh, we have done a transaction with them earlier this year where they're taking about 100,000 square foot of space. They're still working out precisely how that's going to be configured, but half of that could be meeting rooms, auditoriums and the like, and half of that could be uh, what we'd call offices on demand. We really liked their offer. They were differentiated. We went and see, saw them in America. And for us, you know, the purpose of doing that 100,000 square foot letting wasn't to say, right, bang, you know, we've, we've done a deal on 100,000 square foot, X percent of the building. You know, first and foremost, it was about creating that environment um, and that amenity for occupiers in a building. And they totally got that. So we were com- completely mirrored in what we wanted to provide. We could have done it ourselves. We, we, we're investment managers. Um, our business model is to work with expert partners throughout and providing that sort of facility and that sort of flexibility, you know, for us is, uh, you know, is, it's a highly skilled um, management expertise, which we don't necessarily have in-house. And again, when you look at our AXA business model, you know, we, we own different assets with different partners and different structures. And each time the critical thing for us is to work with, uh, you know, with, with, with best in the market for what that offer is. So it gives us ultimate flexibility. And therefore, you know, going the, you know, the role of partnerships with experts is the best and most flexible one. So you, you look at this sort of partnership, it's similar to if you were, uh, the, the way you handle facilities management, the way you handle the uh, security concierge, uh, you just bring in a partner. So in, in this scenario, you bring in a partner to manage the flex space as well. Yeah, just bringing in a partner, um, that wouldn't uh, necessarily do, do justice, the procurement, you know, and, and when you're talking about security and you're talking about, you know, the people that are going to help run our infrastructure and everything else, we go through a very rigorous uh, and thorough process. And actually finding our flex partner was something that we're looking at for two years. And you can imagine all the people we spoke to, um, some we had to go and find. I can't imagine. Were- <laughs> Others were absolutely knocking down our door, but we, we wanted something a, that was differentiated, the build, building was, and, um, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of feedback from occupiers on that basis. We, this is, this is, this is an advert for Convene, but they, they just absolutely met what we wanted to, uh, what we wanted to provide. And actually, it goes beyond uh, Convene, because right now we're in discussions with uh, another provider. Um, they've got a slightly different market, slightly different skill set, but they're fl- still in a flexible arena. They tend to work with more, you know, the smaller SMEs. Um, I don't think so many of our occupiers will necessarily be taking space in their environment. They want, to, they might want to put small research teams and put them in there, and that would be a you know really good mm-hmm. thing to do. We've seen that happen around the market. Um, but they could be taking, you know, something in excess of, you know, 50 to 65,000 square foot. So put all that together, we've got a differentiated offer of about 165,000 square foot. So, so can I drive it, dr- drill into that a little yeah, of bit? So with the Kaveen deal, you mentioned 100,000 square foot, yep. um, which you also mentioned earlier that you've allocated 100,000 square foot approximately of, for space as a service. Of, of what um, we're calling the more community uses. 
Is that separate from the convenience yes, space? Yes, it is. Okay, so in total then, you've got 200,000 square foot of amenity, communal, flex space. What I'm going to wrap into space as a service. 250, if you include that, um, that party that we're in discussion with at the moment. That's a large percentage of your overall yes. footprint. Yes. Uh, 20%. 20%. Are you, uh, is, it, is, there, is there a concern from your perspective on how that might affect valuation of the building, of the asset? Because obviously the way you value buildings today, there's no asset class or space as a service yet. Um, in looking at forward thinking, this is more transactional. Well, there's an asset class in hotels, which is the ultimate space as a service, isn't it? Um, you know, I think the office market's got a little way to go, but it is, it is learning quickly. Um, it, it, everyone talks about, you know, what, what is this percentage where it starts impacting value? And there are so many different metrics that you need to consider. But as a rule of thumb, um, I, th- I think it's fair to say, and I'd have to defer to my investment colleagues, but if you've got an asset with, say, 20 to 25% of space as space as a service, and there's different ways you can deliver that, because you could just lease it, or you could partner it, or you could try and run it yourself, Certainly. and a number of the bigger REITs are doing exactly that. I think they should be applauded for doing so. Uh, but there's, there's, a, there's a slightly different model to us. Which we will discuss in a future episode. Oh, Okay. So 20 to 25 percent, you know, feels about the right number. I think once you start going beyond that, um, then some investors might start saying, whoa, hang on, well, we want security of income. You know, do we have security of income? And then you start looking at the underlying or the fundamentals of the property, the location, the building, how good a building is. And I think for our building being, you know, a new building, what it is, you know, the floor plates, you know, we've had great feedback on those. You know, if for some reason that we felt we we're offering too much space as a service or a flexi, then we'd be very comfortable taking some of that back and letting it on a more conventional basis. Equally, if we get floors back and we would like that opportunity of getting floors back in the future, if there's more demand for that, then great, we can put it into that market. And, you know, they're, they're, you know we, we, we haven't stopped yet. You know, there, there is a further model where perhaps we could take direct control of that space. I don't think we would offer it and provide it but I think we'd work with a partner, but perhaps more on a kind of a management agreement basis. The two, the two deals we've done, Caleb, are both on leases. I wouldn't call them conventional leases necessarily, but for us, the lease was the right model. Um, can can go, you go ahead? No, what was your question? Well, I was going to ask in regards to, to those leases, can you talk more about them not being conventional? What does that mean? Okay. Um, so, and in fact, it's, it's not just, um, you know, the, the flexible office uh, leasing, but also the community spaces and how we've done those. I mean, the, the, you know, in a way, the simplest way I've done it would, would have been to do a, you know, a straightforward management agreement. We've always felt that it would be right for our partner to have some skin in the game. Um, and therefore, you know, a lease enabled that to happen. Um, you know, there is a profit share arrangement within it. Um, and then there are, there are also certain KPIs, which you know, we're asking them to maintain, because if, if you just lease the space to someone and they have complete control, then actually, you know, how can we be sure that what they're trying to do with the space is aligned with what we want? And what we want is for something that is actually going to be relevant to the occupiers in the building. And you know, the, the reason we're putting it in isn't because out of those particular bits of space, we can make greater returns from them or greater direct returns from them or higher rent, you know, we put it in because it actually drives value through the rest of the building. So it's really important that we're aligned and the lease arrangement that we've come to with the element of profit shares and cost shares 
um, and with the KPIs, we're, we're happy with that model. We've still got a couple of bits to go and we might, we might go the route of a different model for those. But, um, you know, t- t- time will tell. Um, w- what I know, Caleb, is that when this building is fully occupied and we look at all that space as, an, as a service, it won't be right. It won't be wrong. It will be close to right. But, you know, we see this as being in permanent beta. And it has to be in permanent beta because as the occupiers change, you know, their needs are going to change. As the market changes, their needs are going to change. So we have to have that element as a flex, you know, element of flex so we can, you know, keep adapting the model so it meets the needs of the occupiers. Well, that's refreshing to hear. Um, in, in regards, going back to your point about um, Convene and this other occupier and driving value in the rest of the building, I know Convene, in, in what I know of Convene, um, they have a lot of enterprise clients. They have a lot of corporate. They have a lot of blue chip. Um, and this other um, uh, partner that you mentioned, I, I guess is remaining nameless right now, um, they are focused on, you mentioned SMEs um, and, and, and smaller innovative companies. So is, is, is the thinking behind that from an AXA driving value perspective, uh, not just the people in, in the building, but is the thinking that um, the convene footprint would be a benefit for other occupiers in the building, whilst the other um, op partner might drive future occupiers, larger companies in the building as those companies grow? Yeah, b- broadly. Um, you mentioned the enterprise clients. I mean, actually, and when, when we were talking to Convene, um, a number of the, um, the occupiers we were talking to directly, they were very aware of Convene. They always got a very good write-up and their reputation was right, which gave us you know, a great deal of comfort. But I think it's fair to say that the majority of their client set will be uh, more enterprise. Actually, there, there is a particular organization we're talking to right now, and they were talking about taking, you know, sort of half a floor from us. And then they said, actually, we only want it for three years. And we said, well, actually, maybe given the element of flex you want and you want to get it fitted out, look, here's Convene. That might be a better proposition to you. You know, we're, we're very happy to hand over, you know, occupiers of a certain scale to Convene. And if they can accommodate them for the future, then fantastic. And, you know, you know, Especially if you're in partnership with them because well, well, it benefits well, well, you and, and, in the end. And if, and if we're in partnership. But, you know, primarily it's about, you know, getting the right profile of occupiers um, in the building. And I, I can't remember, I mentioned it, Caleb, earlier, so apologies. But, you know, when we're talking about the metrics of what creates value, you know, yes, there are certain metrics at which we underwrote the development of the building. We're doing this on behalf of our investors. We want to meet, meet those. But, you know, for me, the other one is when this building is fully let, it's just standing back and looking at the profile on occupiers and that kind of community. Um, and I, I found this really nice um, kind of metaphor. Maybe, maybe I'll talk about it later that kind of explains this quite nicely. Uh, but having that kind of you know, right community in the building. And that's about having a balanced and sustainable ecosystem. And, um, you know, it's important. You know, I trip up a little because because it gets a little bit overused, but but it's real. And you know, if you know through you know the conventional leasing we're doing, or more conventional leasing, and as I said, we know we're very happy to do flexible terms in terms of expansion and contraction and everything else. Um, but you know, Convene have got their market, and this other party we're talking to, they, they are much more um, aligned to the kind of the smaller SMEs, and that's great. And actually, if we can create that environment and building where all the, all the occupiers are working with each other, you know, big occupiers want to come and support and counsel and learn from the small ones. Small ones need the kind of 
you know, the financial um, and experience of some of the bigger ones. And if you can get that right and working with it a building, it's a, it's a big ask. It's an easy thing to talk about. To actually make it work is quite hard. But if you can, then that's going to create quite a special environment in a building. And the, I, I, I just look at um, uh, my, my particular focus group. I have four children all in their early 20s. And, you know, what, what is it that inspires them at work? You know, what, on a Friday, what is a good day? And they're all going to have portfolio careers you know, they're going to be moving around a lot more. And they're really motivated at who have I met and what have I learned. And if you can create that sort of environment, that's really important. And the, um, the way we used to talk about it, I remember there was a particular occupier we were talking to about a year and a half ago. They're not coming, by the way. <laughs> um, but they were looking at three or four options around London. So we we're thinking, well, how are we going to position? How are we going to tell the story of 22? And we knew that one of the buildings they were looking at was uh, a large sort of converted warehouse, you know, kind of cool, very trendy, you know, up on the edge of Spitalfield. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the counter to that was us, you know, the other way, going down Bishop's Gate in a glass and steel tower. So if you can imagine two people coming out of the Crossrail station and then one turns left into the warehouse and one turns right into the, you know, the glass and steel tower, who's got the bragging rights? You know, who's, who's, who's got the environment they want to be in? And for us, it's about creating that environment inside the building. Um, and around the building is so important. And actually, I keep talking about inside the building, but, you know, if, if we get this right in terms of how we're managing 22, it will also reach out to the, uh, to the environment and the people around in, in many ways. So it goes back to your stickiness comment. You're trying to create an experience for the people that are going to come into the building, whether they're there every day or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and create an experience that, that they'll talk about and they'll want to be involved. And, and the people and the people they're trying to employ. Um, so we're almost, we're almost finished here. I've got a couple quick fire questions coming up, but before I get into those, um, just one question going back to the, the partnership um, structure of these deals you're doing with, with, the, with the operators that are coming in. Um, do, do you see that being the future? Do you, do you see that replacing leases with operators or are, are we going to see more partnerships like this um, or management agreements? I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you talk to the operators, I think the operators increasingly everyone picking up is saying, actually, do we want, do we want the responsibility of the real estate? Actually, what we want to provide is the management and the experience and the expertise. Mm-hmm. So I think the operators generally would prefer to go the, the, the route of the management agreement, and that's what I'm picking up. But then equally, you know, we as owners, if we're partnering with someone, we do want them to have skin in the game. I think, I think everyone, the circumstances of everyone is different. But I think what people do have to be is a lot more creative in terms of how they structure them, just to make sure that everybody's interests are properly aligned. And look, you don't want to, you don't want to put too much pressure on your operator either. If you put them under too much financial stress, that stressed people don't make good decisions. Mm. And, and it's, but, but at the same time, if they've got no skin in the game, then what's their motivation? You know, we, we want these spaces to make money because if they're making money because they're popular and they're working well. So it's a good measure of success, provided it's all done on the right basis. Well, you're right that, uh, about what you said at the beginning of this is that the demand for flexibility is there. Um, it sounds like you guys have um, found the right partners uh, for AXA, uh, sorry, for 22 Bishops Gate. Um, and, uh, yeah, yes. It's, I mean, it is fair to say that we work with a number of other flexible operators around our portfolio, around the world. Uh, actually, it's always, you know, who's the best one for that building at the time. Well, if, if the demand for flexibility continues to grow, um, there's stats right now that say, you know, 
five, six, 10% of the old overall office stock is flexed mm-hmm. now, depending on which market you go to, going to go to 30%. Um, I think I've seen that statistic. Maybe, I don't know whether people are having a little rethink on that right now, but yeah. uh, well, you know, we we we've done so well not to mention a certain brand, mm-hmm. and I think I'm going to try to keep keep that brand name out of here. But there is some news. That's, well, I, th- I think they've done a I think they've done a fantastic job in you know opening the world's eyes to another way of doing things. Hundred yeah, percent. Me, fan, me as well. Fan. My my big question around that though is um if flexibility if the demand for flexibility grows and more partnerships with operators to provide that flexibility and the footprint goes from, you know, up to 30%, 40, 50% in some assets potentially. Um, how does that, how does that affect the way you look at developing assets uh, when it comes to what, a customer being able to just pick up and leave because they have flexibility versus being locked in for 10 or 20 years? Uh, I think I'll go back to something I was saying right at the beginning, which is, you know, for us, the best buildings are those that appeal to the widest diversity of occupiers and are most adaptable over time. And if you've got space that is truly adaptable, I mean, just, just, just a small reference, um, you know, we've created space, which is three meter floor to ceiling height, because once this building is up, it's not going to come down again. And therefore, it's like long life, loose fit. And we're, you know, we're very careful with the design of the floor plate just to make it, you know, as, as much flexibility as possible. So, you know, it provided exactly that adaptability. And therefore, you know, look, looking at the value of the property, is the value in the lease or is the value in the asset? And it just means, you know, paying a lot of attention to the asset to make sure you've got absolutely the right I think I think that's the tweetable moment. Uh, is the value in the lease or is it in the asset? Is it experience? But um, I mean, actually, just just that point of you know get, getting to thirty to forty percent, you know, being the flex flex market. I, I think the direction of travel is clear. I'm not convinced it's going to happen as quickly uh, as everybody is saying. And I know I'm trying to think of the quote, the one that's always misattributed to Bill Gates, which is that. Change always takes longer. Um, no, the change is always more profound, but it takes longer to get there than you expect. Okay, so now we've, we've reached this with a couple of quick fire questions for you. Um, first off, um, other than 22 Bishopsgate, what's your favorite building in London? Oh, um, well, actually, I saw someone a little bit earlier when we were talking about a building. Actually, the one I really like King's Place in King's Cross. Uh, I mean, that was when that was developed, you know, it was before the rest of King's Cross, but just just the mix of uses in there. I think that's uh, a really impressive building. Excellent. Who do you get inspired by in commercial real estate? Whoa. Uh, Who or what do I get inspired by? Um, So I just picked up this book recommended by someone in real estate, um, and it was written by Matthew Syed. I don't know if you've come across Matthew. Matthew, um, He's uh, he's one of our great table tennis players uh, back in the day, going back about 15, 20 years. Um, He's also a writer and a communist for The Times, and he's got a really good sporting podcast. But he's written two or three very interesting books. And someone recommended one called Rebel Ideas. So it's rebels that inspire me. Did you tweet about that recently? I might have okay. done. Uh, yes, I did. Um, and I can't remember because there was a, uh, <laughs> uh, there was a Mark Twain quote that went alongside it. Because just as I was reading that, I was also watching The Big Short. Brilliant film for anyone in real estate. Or for anyone, but if oh, you're yeah, in real estate, excellent. you absolutely have to see it. Uh, I can't believe it's taken me so long. But uh, his, his book, right, um, you know, I've just read this first chapter and it's always about, you know, the, 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 the power and the benefit of working in teams. And you know, he's got some great metaphors on all of this. 
But he talked about this study that was done in a university in America where they, um, they had three groups of people. They had individuals, they had groups of four who were all friends and fr from a similar ilk, and they had other groups of three friends plus an outsider. So they gave all of these people a whodunit, a fictional whodunit, but very complicated. They gave them loads of data, information, background history on people, and they said, right, go and solve this whodunit. And the whole theme of the book is about working in groups. So you can anticipate that the individuals fared least well. But of the two groups, the ones that did best, and again, the theme of the book, is, is a group of three with an outsider, with a rebel. But what was interesting is the groups of four who are all of the same ilk were far more convinced they had the right solution and found the whole process much easier. The group of three with an outsider were far less comfortable they had got the right answer. And the whole process was a little bit more complicated, but through that, they got better results. And for me, you know, therefore, the, uh, the rebels. Do you want me to name names? <laughs> Feel free, go for it. Name some names. I mean, look, I'm not going to name my... my this uh, is a bold the, podcast, so we name names. Okay. Uh, so look, the, look, the, the colleagues I work with, you know, I am blessed, and, you know, particularly over the last year, for all sorts of reasons, um, they have been fantastic, and, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look back on that. Um, but, you know, just, just the people who, you know, I'll go and have breakfast with, and, you know, and have a couple of cups of coffee. And I think that was great. That was a good idea. You don't have to agree, but they just challenge your thinking. We're, we're an industry that really is very good at looking backwards, very good at looking sideways. And we make big decisions that might last 20 or 100 years. So it, inherently, the product we create tends to be quite risk averse. So people that take us out of that kind of inherent um, you know, risk environment for me are good. So, you know, our mutual friend, Anthony Slummers, have a lot of time for Josh, Josh Artis, you know, I always called him my... Fellow so American. My, uh, who? Josh, Josh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I always called him my, um, you know, my social conscience, you know, Lee Elliott, you know, David Rosen is always good, Jeremy Arson. You know, there are a lot of really good people. You know, we, we just, you know, our industry just needs to spend a lot more time talking to them and listening. And therefore, you know, looking forward and just taking more measured risks going forward. I'm going to paraphrase what you said and put it into my favorite quote, challenge the status quo. <laughs> challenge the status quo. Yeah, I love, I love that. You know, and there, there are interesting people coming. Actually, I think one of the really interesting developers coming over right now is, um, you know, we've seen them in Amsterdam, but is Ed, Edge Technologies. Oh, know, yeah. They've just got a site. Um, I was really impressed by what I saw over in Amsterdam. Not, not Edge Mark 1, but Edge Mark 2 and some of the other stuff are doing some of the great architecture. The great breakfast of BVN architects who aren't over here at the moment, or they've just uh, they're just looking at you know opening, they're you know, really inspiring. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to Edge coming over to to London and seeing what they're all about because what I've seen so far is impressive. I'm really excited. Um, two more questions. Wow. Okay. Where can we find you on Twitter? What is your Twitter handle? Oh well, the Twitter handle. Um, it's at James Gold underscore Smith. Excellent. Final question. When is 22 Bishopsgate going to open its doors? Well, we're due to hit practical completion next spring. Uh, I've just been around the site this morning, you know, just a few days before Christmas, and it's, uh, it's absolutely going full tilt. Um, and the first occupiers, uh, which includes us, AXA, IM, uh, we will be going there probably at the end of May. So, wow, that's less than six months away. Exciting. I'm looking Sorry. forward to the, uh, to the opening party. Of course, Caleb. James, thank you for coming on. Always Pleasure. appreciate spending time with you and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. We've got an exciting and insightful season ahead, and I hope you enjoy every episode. If you do, I'd love for you to share it with that one person who you think 
should hear the message. You can always find our podcast on our website, workbold.co, and click on podcast. And it would mean a lot to me if you leave the show a five-star review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And finally, please do connect with me on social media. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram, or just search LinkedIn. Send me a message, a DM, send me your questions. What do you want to hear about next? Comment on my accent or challenge what we've talked about. I want to hear from you. Now, thank you for listening. And don't forget, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.